Hello, and welcome to Beyond the Breakers, a podcast about shipwrecks, loss, and lessons learned from maritime disasters. My name is Taylor, and I'll be your host. And like always, we just want to start out by saying thank you for your support. We're so happy to be creating something that so many people are enjoying. I want to take a minute to shout out our social media items. On Twitter, we are at Beyond underscore Breakers. Instagram, Beyond the Breakers podcast. Our email is beyondthebreakerspod at gmail.com, and we do have a Patreon page. The Patreon page is patreon.com slash beyondthebreakers. Just a quick note that the pod will always be ad-free, and the Patreon just kind of goes towards research materials, web hosting, all the things that go into making the podcast what it is. With that stuff out of the way, I'll go ahead and bring in Tanner, and uh, Tanner, how you doing? Pretty good. I'm just going to close my window here, because we've got, uh, I've got, I don't know, uh, children and parents and all kinds of stuff outside my window right now. So. <laughs> Got to enjoy that nice weather in Wisconsin while you can. All right. Um, uh, yeah, doing, uh, well, okay, pretty well. This had Good. a rough week at work. Just kind of one of those weeks where you sort of technically did all the stuff you had to do, but you didn't really do it impressively or feel didn't very feel good, good doing it. it. Yeah, so I get that. Got through a rough week, but it was also good. It's been a good weekend. Speaking of nice weather, Katie and I... Yesterday, actually, right before we recorded the bonus episode, we went out and played tennis. Nice. Um, this is the most in my 30s I've felt, I think, so far. <laughs> a um, little sore. We played tennis for at most 30 minutes. And like <laughs> I'm like my the insides of my thighs are just so, so sore today. Um, yeah, it's been a while. Yeah, so, I believe it. So lots of good stuff happening here. Uh, I did want to throw in one detail here. Since you just mentioned the social media stuff and Patreon, just as a reminder to everyone, the Patreon levels or the things associated with the levels have changed somewhat. Now that $3 level will get you all of the bonus episodes. So just a a few bucks uh, each month gets you that bonus content. Bonus episodes, we're kind of working on workshopping some other things in addition to those episodes to kind of throw to those uh those other levels but for the future three dollars on patreon gets you the bonus episode so check those out if you're interested in hearing more we just did a sort of an expansion episode on the uh the hmas melbourne our last episode we talked about her collision with the voyager Um, in our bonus episode that i did with katie we talked about her second collision with the uss frank e evans so don't be shy about checking out the patreon Yep. And also uh, just wanted to say thank you for all the downloads in July. We had by far our best month ever. Mm-hmm. We had 976 downloads. That's uh, I know it's not a lot in the grand scheme of podcasts, but it's a whole heck of a lot for us. Yeah, that's um, that was amazing. Like every day I was checking it, like just seeing, you know, consistent days of, you know, 30, 40, 50 downloads. Yeah. Like you said, there's plenty of podcasts where that would be that would be nothing but for us that's uh that's pretty massive so yeah thank you to everyone who's uh who's downloaded and listened definitely and i think with that stuff out of the way let's go ahead and jump into today's uh today's story today we'll be talking about the queen of the north have you ever heard of this vessel sansa stark <laughs> but no i've so, not heard of the i've not heard of the vessel so i actually had not heard of this one either although the story sounded a little familiar once i got into it First off, let's just go into a little background like we always do. She's built in 1969 in Bremerhaven, Germany. Built by A.G. Wesser, 
and originally owned by Stena Line. She's 410 feet long, 65 feet wide, and draws about 17 feet of water. So it's a pretty big vessel, and also it's a pretty big draft, 17 feet. So she's, she's you know, she's built to carry stuff. She's, she's mm-hmm. built to do work. She's known as the Stena Danica, and she sails from Gothenburg, Sweden, to Frederickshaven, Denmark. And also worth noting what type of vessel she is. She's our favorite type of vessel. She's a row-row fairy. Oh, no. That... <laughs> The Rutro Ferry. <laughs> so many of our stories involve Roro Ferries, and there's still so many more to come. So she had a crew of 50, although at the time of the incident we're going to be talking about, there's only 42 crew members on board. She could carry up to 650 passengers. Fortunately, she only had 59 on board for today's events. So keep that in mind as we're talking about this. This vessel could, in theory, carry up to 650 people and how much more chaotic it would have been. Mm-hmm. She's actually able to carry 157 vehicles, and she only has 22 on board at the time of her sinking. So, again, not fully loaded, and that's definitely a good thing in this scenario. So she's purchased by the British Columbia Ferry Service in 1974, and she's renamed the Queen of Surrey. She began working a route from Horseshoe Bay in West Vancouver to Ninemo on Vancouver Island. So she's just running like a quick back-and-forth route. And that would have mostly been tourists and stuff like that. People trying to get over to Vancouver Island for a weekend or a holiday or just a day trip even. Um, it was pretty quick back and forth. Unfortunately, it becomes apparent pretty quickly that this vessel is not suited for that type of work. She's made for longer distance travel. There's a pretty long load and unload process. And she's actually making this transit up to eight times per day. And she's just not able to keep up with that. She's too big to be unloaded that quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, She's decommissioned in 1976, and she's laid up where her fate was to be decided. There's actually a little bit of controversy in, like, the local British Columbia government for buying this vessel at the time because it was imported from Europe, and it it clearly wasn't the right type of vessel. There was, like, a minor scandal, like, involving, like, why this vessel cost so much and why they weren't using it and things like Hmm. that. Interesting. In May of 1980, uh, she goes through a $10 million refit. And her name is changed to Queen of the North. She began to operate the inside passage so between Port Hardy on Vancouver Island and Prince Rupert in the Northwest. All right. Hey, shout out to Prince Rupert. <laughs> any, any Stuart legitimists out there? Prince Rupert, always, always one of my historical favorites. Yeah, it was really interesting. This inside passage looks like it'd be a really cool trip. It's kind of through a lot of different little you know, passageways and inlets and locks and stuff. Like, it looks really interesting. It's Mm -hmm. beautiful looking, but also really treacherous looking. In 1985, she underwent further refit and modifications, and she was named the flagship of BC's Ferries Fleet. So, obviously, you know, they kind of decided they've sunk the money into this vessel. They're going to make it as nice as they can. They want to make it, like, the pride of the fleet and kind of justify its existence. In 1994, as a result of the sinking of the MS Estonia, a second set of internally welded doors are installed on the bow to prevent flooding and heavy weather. Mm -hmm. The Estonia is a much more tragic story than this one, and I could not bring myself to do that right after doing the General Slocum, Mm -hmm. but we will definitely at some point talk about that one because it uh, is pretty recent and pretty horrible as far as, uh, you know, death toll and just issues with these types of vessels. It was a major learning experience. And and as a link to one of our favorite podcasts, so anyone who's listening to us that doesn't know about this other podcast, the podcast, Well, There's Your Problem, one of their pretty early episodes, I think they covered mm-hmm. Estonia. They, they probably have a, will definitely have a more technical 
perspective on things than we would probably do in any any episode that we covered that. But yeah, that's there if you want to check that out. Yep. In 2001, she underwent another refit and that modernized her passenger decks. And basically, as you can see from all of this, like this vessel is pretty well maintained. Like they're putting money into it. This isn't something like uh, we talk about with like the passenger vessels and the ferries on Lake Victoria where everything's neglected mm-hmm. and, you know, they're basically floating death or, traps. Or El Faro, like our first episode. Or, yeah. Yeah. The, this vessel is well maintained. This vessel is looked after. So that's not the issue. Let's get into the sinking. Let's get into the story as to what happened here. So on March 21st, 2006, Queen of the North departs Prince Rupert, British Columbia for Port Hardy. She's scheduled to arrive in Port Hardy at 1.30 p.m. on March 22nd. I didn't get an exact time for her departure, but it's like late evening, basically. So this is just an overnight trip. Like if you're a passenger, you get on and you hang out for a little bit. You go to bed, you wake up, have breakfast, and then you're there is basically the idea behind this. Like, it's not a long-term cruise or anything. Mm -hmm. The crew on the bridge consisted of the ship's master, the second officer, and a quartermaster. And there was actually an additional quartermaster who was referred to as QM2 in the official report. So was each of them an an eighth master? (laughs) So, like... How I'm going to do this, I did not use anyone's names, A, because it would be a little confusing, and B, it's such a recent case that I just don't feel the need to use any names. Right. But um, everyone's given an abbreviation in the report, and I'll just be using those for the most part. So that additional quartermaster that was on deck, they're there to support QM1, who had requested assistance due to being unfamiliar with the vessel. So although qualified to steer the vessel, they just weren't very comfortable doing it. It's noted at this time that QM1 is hand steering the ferry while the vessel's master is at the con. So, you know, the captain of the ship doesn't actually turn the wheel. Like, there's someone whose job it is to do that. But the captain's, the master is issuing the orders. This is kind of a a cool detail, I guess, that I haven't seen a lot of in any of the stories we've covered where you have a situation where where someone has explicitly requested assistance with something. Saying, hey, I'm not totally familiar with this. I might need a little bit of support. I can't remember seeing much of that in anything we've covered. So that's kind of a, uh, an interesting detail. Yeah. It's kind of the opposite of the Blackthorn where they had an inexperienced person at the helm and they don't ask for help. Mm-hmm. So it is, it is an interesting wrinkle. That's different. The main thing to get out of this, it's just, it's important to know at this point that the vessel's being hand steered. Mm-hmm. It's not in like autopilot mode or right. anything like that. So this group is later joined by the fourth officer after he completes his departure duties. So now you've got the fourth officer, two quartermasters, and the captain or master all on the bridge. So it's pretty well staffed at this point. At around 8.50 p.m., quartermaster one is relieved by quartermaster two. So the inexperienced person takes a break. They go off duty for a little bit. About 10 minutes later, the master gives the con to the second officer. The second officer was instructed to contact the master if any traffic was encountered at Stella Creek. Uh, Stella Creek is just kind of a known spot on the route where the channel begins to significantly narrow. And that just it is navigation can be difficult. The captain wants to be on scene if that's happening because he wants to have that control. Mm-hmm. But uh, after issuing that order, the captain heads to his cabin. So he's basically gone off duty. He's going to sleep. But he still has issued that order that if they need him for you know that kind of thing, they are to wake him up. Okay. So between 10 p.m. and 11.50 p.m., operations on the bridge were typical for a vessel operating at night. Various crew members rotated through watches. The second and fourth officer both took turns manning the con. 
And at 11.45, Quartermaster 1 returns to relieve Quartermaster 2 at the helm. They talk for a few minutes and have a turnover session. And at 11.50, Quartermaster 1 does actually take the helm. It's noted at this point that the vessel was operating by autopilot, maintaining a course of 139 degrees at a speed of 17 and a half knots. So that, the difference there is they've kind of got the route pre-planned. They're not hand steering it anymore. It's kind of just focused on that heading. But obviously, you still have to be maintaining and monitoring. You can't just let it go. Right. So I guess autopilot, we haven't, I guess, encountered a lot in our episodes that I can think of. Is it essentially functioning kind of like autopilot in a in a plane where you have this pre-programmed route and you're kind would, of just there to make sure that nothing untoward happens? I would uh, probably say think of it more as like a cruise control type thing, but uh, like, but like with like how newer cars have like lane keep assist. Think of it more like that, where it's just going to keep you focused on like what you're doing. Mm-hmm. You can still have manual inputs and stuff into it gotcha. from there. So just before midnight, the fourth officer returns to the bridge. And the second officer informed him that there was no reported traffic. The only vessel of note was another southbound vessel that would later be identified as the fishing vessel Lone Star. The second officer also informed him that the winds were now gusting to 30 knots on the ferry's starboard bow. So the weather's beginning to pick up a little bit. Once when they left port, obviously, you know, pretty good conditions, no real issues, no wind. That's starting to change. The fourth officer was now the officer on watch. So they're the highest ranking person. They're the person that has the con. And the second officer then goes to retrieve his laptop from his cabin. And he actually brings it back to the bridge to play music. He then leaves the bridge to take his break. I thought it's very interesting that he's brought a laptop to the bridge to play music. It's kind of, it's Chekhov's laptop. (laughs) That's how I felt reading through the notes when I read through those quickly, just before we recorded. It's like, that has to be important later. That's a really specific detail. <laughs> the, lap, the laptop has to go off at some point. <laughs> so this left the fourth officer and the quarter and quartermaster one alone on the bridge. They proceeded to engage in small talk and personal conversations while carrying out their duties. And it's noted at 1159, a course adjustment of four degrees to port was made to keep the vessel on track. So they're just they're chatting. They're talking, having personal conversations, but they're still doing their job. The fourth officer was using the electronic chart system to determine his estimated time of arrival at the next call-in point. I basically think of this as like GPS for ships. Like he's looking on a map to see like where he is. And they have these call-in points where they have to just kind of let a central Coast Guard operated facility know their location. And it's just so people know where everyone is out there. Think of it as like air traffic control almost. You're reporting your location. Right. So at around 12.02 a.m., the fourth officer calls Prince Rupert traffic, and he reports the position of the vessel. The call lasts for about 40 seconds, and it's actually noted that music can be heard in the background of the call. The fourth officer notes the communication and then resumes his personal conversation with Quartermaster One. So what do we know about bridge resource management or crew resource management? Is that a good example? I would say in the, in the strictest sense of things, probably not in terms of keeping focused on what you're doing. Uh, yeah, it definitely doesn't seem like the right way to do it. Probably not. But I guess, hey, we'll see. We'll see how the story ends. <laughs> so at almost the same time, the weather quickly deteriorates. And you kind of have to think about where you're at. Like here, like you're deep into the like, the back country of the Pacific Northwest, like mm-hmm. getting up towards Alaska. Like it's pretty inhospitable. Like the weather can change quickly. So the weather quickly deteriorates. A squall of heavy winds and rain causes rapid loss of visibility. 
It's noted that the previously mentioned vessel Lone Star was lost from radio contact because it had passed Santee Point, and it's actually now seeking shelter behind Promise Island. I feel like that's kind of worth including, not that it has anything to do with our story, but if a fishing vessel is looking to seek shelter, that probably means it's pretty bad. Mm-hmm. If they're not wanting to mess around in those conditions, then you should be on alert and be cautious. I'll just do a, a quick plug here for the book I finished today called November's Fury by Michael Schumacher. Not that Michael Schumacher. <laughs> um, what this reminded me of is uh, this was the Great Lakes Hurricane of 1913. You know, Many ships were lost in this hurricane, but you had a lot of very seasoned, very hardcore lake captains sort of seeing the weather reports and deciding to stay in port. And so, yeah, again, the idea of if this guy is deciding it's too dangerous, then maybe it's too dangerous. Or at least maybe I should be paying attention to my job yeah, and not I, I, listening I should, to Lady Gaga on a laptop. <laughs> I should be focused on this. So at 12.07, the Queen of the North fails to make a required course change and re- proceeds past Santee Point into Wright Sound. As the vessel enters Wright Sound, the fourth officer sat next to the radar, while the quartermaster one sat at the forward steering station. They held intermittent conversation for the next 12 minutes while music could be heard playing in the background. At 12.20, the vessel is now 13 minutes past the planned point of course change at Santee Point. The fourth officer moves between the bridge's front window and the radar and eventually orders a course change of 100 to 109 degrees. Quick question. Yes. When you say that music was heard playing in the background, are we talking about a an audio recorder like what we had with Alfaro? We'll talk about that in a little bit in some of the findings. That is just from testimony. Oh, okay. That they got. There, there actually is no audio recording that I'm aware of. Okay. And that is something that we'll discuss in the findings. So Quartermaster 1 questions this order of the course change to 109 degrees, but it's actually is then reaffirmed by the fourth officer. As Quartermaster 1 stood up to make this change, she was seated and she stands up to make the change at the wheel. She sees trees off the starboard bow. That's bad. You don't want to see trees at night in bad weather. The fourth officer at the same time also sees trees and they move to the aft steering station. While they're doing this, they order Quartermaster 1 to switch from autopilot to hand steering. However, Quartermaster 1 is unfamiliar with the operation of the switch. As we previously said, she had already stated that she wanted help earlier in the day, and she was not able to comply with this order. Subsequent investigations were unable to determine if Quartermaster 1 initiated the course change with autopilot or if the fourth officer was able to switch to hand steering. It's possible that both of these things could have happened almost simultaneously, but there is data that just prior to striking Gale Island, the vessel attempted to change course. Upon impact, Quartermaster 1 immediately left the bridge to get the master. The ferry continued in a northerly direction, decreasing in speed as it struck the island. And feeling the impact, the second officer immediately left the officer's lounge and ran back to the bridge. He arrives on the bridge and he's able to, he testifies that he's able to see land on the vessel's radar display. He then moved the vessel's engine controls from full ahead to full astern, but the vessel did not respond. That's the third person. That's actually the guy that had brought the laptop to the bridge. He was taking a break. He was on duty, but taking a break. So it's not like he was responsible for what's going on on the bridge, but he is also responsible for the one that brought the laptop there. The master then entered the bridge as the general alarm sounded. He orders the watertight doors be closed. And then between 1223 and 1227, the vessel's longitude and latitude are incorrectly communicated to Prince Rupert traffic three times. 
Additionally, they report that there are 101 people on board the vessel. So they're immediately sending out emergency signals to this Prince Rupert traffic control, but they're they're not even giving them the proper information. That's kind of how chaotic the scene is initially. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, is this is this just a pure human error in terms of? It sounds like it. Lack of. I mean, obviously, I'm not there. I don't know. I'm not accident investigator, but my guess is probably lack of control in a chaotic environment, lack of repetitions of practice. I mean, anytime you're in a stressful situation, you haven't practiced it before, you're more likely to screw it up. Whereas think about like an airline pilot, you know, that knows his checklists and all that and he has a problem on takeoff. They don't overreact. They just do the things they need to do. And in this case, whoever was giving that latitude and longitude couldn't even do that correctly. So we we had a panicked. We had a kind of a similar thing on the on the bonus episode we recorded uh, yesterday, where the incident in question kind of appeared that it would be avoided and it could have been avoided. But then at the at the last moment, you you have a, a panic situation that causes this thing to happen. So right, similar stuff. So as this communication was going on, it quickly becomes apparent that the Queen of the North has sustained substantial damage. Water ingress into the hole was immediate, rapid, and extensive. Bilge pumps could not keep up with the ingress of water, and actually the engine room is quickly abandoned, and the crew does not even have enough time to fully inspect the damage to the hole before evacuating. That's how quickly all of this happens, you know. We see in a lot of these stories where people are able to go below decks and kind of see how big holes are or see where water's coming from. They don't even really have this opportunity. It's almost immediately inundated with water. The chief officer was off duty and asleep in his cabin. He was actually awoken by the general alarm, and he proceeds to the bridge and attempts to call the engine room, but was not able to get an answer. He informs the master and takes a radio to go investigate himself. He descends to deck four and notes that deck three, which is the main car storage deck, is already awash. He also noted that the ferry had a small list to the starboard side, so... You know, he's going down there to get some immediate damage, you know, control going on. And he finds pretty quickly that there's not a lot they can do. The second and fourth officer proceeded to the main foredeck and released both anchors. Then the second officer went below through decks three, four and five, calling out and looking for people while assessing flood damage. So you can see it's a it's a pretty chaotic scene. There's a lot happening really quick. It's also worth noting that the Prince Rupert BC Ferry superintendent is on board when all this is going on. So they have someone from like corporate management there. They have their boss on board. <laughs> kind of. It's it's <laughs> like one of yeah, like one of the manager types, not a sailor. <laughs> and he actually gets a hold of BC Ferries management as this is happening and informs them of the situation. At twelve twenty six, Queen of the North advises Prince Rupert Traffic Control that the vessel was aground and needed immediate assistance. Prince Rupert Coast Guard radio broadcasts a Mayday relay that the Queen of the North is aground and listing severely. So they get the message out pretty quick. There's not a, like a real communications delay. Like it's very fortunate that they're able to, to broadcast this emergency stuff very mm-hmm. rapidly. Almost immediately after striking the island, water began to accumulate in the crew accommodation spaces on deck two. As we previously said, the engine room is also on deck two. It's almost immediately flooded. Just after the striking, some crew members knocked on other crew members' door and began clearing cabins on deck two. So there are some crew members that act almost immediately and get into like the kind of the rescue mode that they need to be in. Uh, it's claimed by crew that water was waist deep before they were able to evacuate. And there's actually a really notable account of a crew member being stuck in her cabin on deck two due to a locker that had fallen over. 
Ultimately, she's able to free herself, but not before about four feet of water had accumulated in her cabin. Can you imagine being in a scenario like that? That's it's like something from a horror movie. That's one where the, the steely <laughs> nerves have to come into play, I would think, of not panicking, trying to get this thing off of you. Um, yeah, I mean, it's probably something really simple to do. But yeah, yeah, in that moment, just it would be so hard not to panic. Yeah. So a public address announcement was made stating that passengers and crew should go to the upper deck boat and lifeboat stations. This is a... a interesting part in the notes as I was reading, because like many of the ships we talk about that, you know, have obviously crew and passengers, I totally forgot that there's passengers on the ship too. Until, yeah. we, until we got to this part, I was like, got to worry about them also. Yeah. It's that next layer of stuff. Yeah. So most passengers assemble on the upper deck boat and life raft stations. Most passengers are able to take life jackets from their staterooms. And for the most part, this is actually a pretty orderly process. Most of them get to deck seven as requested. There is a note that a few of them went to deck eight, assuming that the uppermost deck must be where they would evacuate from, but it right. actually wasn't. Uh, once everyone's mustered on deck seven, the crew does work to make sure that all passengers have life jackets, although they fail to conduct a head count prior to preparing survival craft for boarding. And then there's another note that actually passengers, passengers and crew did work together to distribute clothing. It's cold. There's no way around it. It's the middle of the night. It's March and you're, you know, in British Columbia on the water. Like it's very chilly. So actually they do work together to kind of hand out some clothes that people had brought and to make sure that no one was getting hypothermic waiting on the boats to launch. The second steward from the night shift reported to the purser's office. They lay out gear for, for the catering staff to conduct clearing operation of crew cabins and passenger cabins. And I thought that was an important note. It's really, it's cool to see how when you work on a ship like this, even if you have a job being a caterer, like you have another job. Like almost everyone involved has an emergency role that they play. Right. It's really cool seeing that, you know, kind of seeing that in action. You wouldn't, you would think if you're a caterer, you wouldn't be cl- clearing rooms, but that's, that's the thing that's required of you in this mm-hmm. moment. So the crew is able to clear all passenger cabins, except those on the starboard side of deck seven. Fortunately, for the most part, everything is unoccupied. As we said, there were not very many passengers on board or this scene would have been much more chaotic. This was kind of like a horror movie where it keeps threat- it keeps threatening like a jump scare, like with the music, <laughs> and then it doesn't quite happen because I kept on right. getting to parts where I was like, oh no, here's, here's where it gets bad. Uh, right. The Marine Investigation Report notes that the clearing was not carried out according to BC Ferries regulations. Chalk marks were not placed on doors and not all rooms were physically checked. Not all rooms were cleared by those who were assigned to do it. There was a little bit of kind of an ad hoc take at clearing rooms. It wasn't always done by the assigned personnel. Mm -hmm. Some members were delayed in getting to their muster stations by water egress. Additionally, there was some confusion about whether to follow the public announcement to proceed to the upper deck boats or to continue with their assigned duties of clearing all areas for passengers. Uh, There was just confusion as to whether that was an immediate evacuation order or do your job and then proceed there. Mm -hmm. On deck seven, or sorry, on deck six, the lounges were not cleared, and it's not known if the bathrooms were officially cleared. On deck five, the cafeteria and bar were locked and inaccessible. However, the bathrooms on that level were open, so those should have been checked and cleared, although they were not. Deck three was observed to be flooded and it was not checked. So that's just where you, you know, it's kind of best practices to check every available space. That's what the procedure calls for. But in the the chaos of the moment, that doesn't happen, which is fine if everyone gets off the vessel. But if someone doesn't make it off the vessel, then there's kind of that lingering doubt of could someone have been helped? You have to think about like a 
I mean, if there's a passenger in a similar situation to what we saw with the the one member of the crew, you know, who gets stuck somewhere and somewhere right. they could be helped out of if, if it had been checked. Yep, and especially dealing with passengers who aren't, you know, trained in this stuff. You don't know if someone's having a panic attack and can't respond. Like, there's just a lot of scenarios that could be going on that require you to clear every space that you can possibly clear. Once passengers were mustered on deck, on deck seven, abandonment procedures were executed. A few blankets were brought to the muster station, and although the lifeboats were equipped with space blankets, they were not used. So... Again, trying to keep everybody warm, it doesn't appear that they actually used all of the resources that they could have, but there's at least an attempt being made in all of this. Um, It's actually nice to see a story where the lifeboats work. We don't get too many of those. Is this our only story where the lifeboats are actually (laughs) useful, I think? We'd have to to go back through. I mean, there's been other stories where some people get out on lifeboats, but it's usually a much more chaotic scenario. Yeah. So in total, passengers and crew use three life rafts one lifeboat, and one rescue boat during the abandonment. So they used a variety of their life-saving uh, you know, equipment, and they were able to evacuate everyone that mustered at the muster point. What is a rescue boat compared to a lifeboat? Is that- uh, I'm not exactly sure. I'm assuming that it's something, it's, it's more of a real boat, actually, okay. that's meant to be like launched and recovered and mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Okay. But I'm, I didn't actually look through the report to see if they had any examples of what it was. But I'm assuming it's something that's not solely intended for, like, evacuating it, it, the vessel. It would be like if someone fell overboard, potentially, or something. Mm-hmm. Like, you would launch that to try to recover gotcha. them. That's my understanding. That could be wrong. That's that's the way I interpreted it. So at 12.53, the master and the remaining crew abandoned ship using an additional life raft on the starboard side. The Marine Investigation Report notes a few concerns with this process. First is the awareness of the emergency. Most passengers have been asleep, although many were alerted to the noise and motion of the striking of the uh, of Gill Island. Most of the passengers on deck six reported that they did not hear the public announcement or hear the general alarm sound. So that's problematic when you're trying to sound a general alarm to wake up everyone and people on deck six don't hear it. You know, something's wrong with that system, because if it had been a different type of emergency, you may never have known. In this case, most people are jolted awake by, you know, hitting an island. Mm-hmm. but there's other emergencies that are going to happen a lot slower and a lot quieter. Right. Communication with passengers and crowd control is another area that's examined. Some passengers sought information at the purser's office, and this was a pretty chaotic scene. Crew members were already enacting emergency procedures, and these passengers were sent back below deck because there hadn't been an official evacuation order issued yet. They tell them to go down below, but it's also the spot where passengers would go to get information. So that, kind of conflicting messages. That part reminded me so much of the Sewell episode with people right. being just go back to your cabin and wait for something to happen. Yeah. And, uh, and I think it's very fortunate that there's so few people on board the vessel right. that when that changes and it could have changed 30 seconds later, mm-hmm. they're able to actually. Yeah. It's a very, very it. different situation in a, in a fortunate sense here. Yeah. So instructions to passengers were passed along by word of mouth. At times, it was not easy to identify who was a crew member since many of them were out of uniform or only partially in uniform. You got to figure, you know, you don't know if someone telling you what to do is is like an official representative of the company. Is it just a passenger that thinks he knows what he's doing? You know, you have no idea when someone's just in a white T-shirt and shorts that just rolled out of bed. Is it just some guy with an anchor tattoo or (laughs) is he a crew member? And I, I, this actually was something kind of interesting, too. All the directions were given using the terms port and starboard 
most passengers or many of the passengers weren't able to use that information. They didn't know the difference between port and starboard and where that meant to go. I could see that. And I think even in that situation, if you're not familiar with the vessel, especially in like a a high anxiety situation, even if you do know the difference between those, you know that one is right and one is left. Right. I actually identifying, you know, in the moment, which one is which and and where to actually go is also going to be an issue. Yeah, it's definitely an example of like a unneeded use of jargon instead of just effectively communicating. Mm -hmm. Another issue would be the counts that were conducted that day. As passengers enter the survival craft, a count was conducted to prevent overcrowding. These counts were relayed to the master, but they were not recorded. So they don't have anything to refer back to when they get different numbers. One person who was designated to perform this count is distracted by a passenger with a young child, and they're not able to complete their count accurately because they're attending to a small child, which I get it. Like, you're not going to not help the lady with a small child, but... It also just distracts from someone else should have been able to step in and do that if this person's job was to do the count. After abandoning the vessel, the master designated one person in each craft to perform a count, but with limited visibility and no means to record the counts, this information was not consistent or reliable. So that's problematic. Like you, you don't want to not know who you have. Like you, you kind of need to know that if we've got a hundred and twelve people in this vessel, we've got a hundred and twelve people with us. And since we mentioned earlier about. Um... Yeah, I think we mentioned passengers kind of participating also in the sort of helping with the evacuation process. When it says designated one person in each craft, I'm assuming that's a crew member he's designating. I would assume so. This was pretty orderly. So I would assume okay. that like each boat had an officer or something in okay. charge of it. And that was, you know, they might have delegated that to someone else, but it would have been a crew member, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. All right, let's talk about search and rescue operations. At 1226 Joint Rescue Coordination Center in Victoria was informed of the Queen of the North situation. They Immediately after this broadcast, the fishing vessel Lone Star, which is who we had referenced previously, says that she will come and assist on the scene. She's about five miles away when she first hears the call. I think probably part of my favorite story in all this is the residents of Hartley Bay, British Columbia, heard the Mayday call in their homes, and they quickly respond by organizing several boats that respond to the scene. They're about six miles away. Additionally, the Cultural Center in Hartley Bay, they make preparations to receive survivors. So they begin to, you know, gather coats, cots, beds, blankets, make food. Like, they're prepping to receive people, which it's kind of a cool story. Like, a little town like that in the middle yeah. of the night getting up to, to assist. And we've seen that a couple times before, but it still remains very impressive how these seaside communities tend to respond so so quickly and so effectively to these situations when they arise. And it's yeah. it's pro- it's probably not you know surprising to someone who maybe lives in that uh, area. It's probably just part of what's expected. But I think it's a it's a cool thing to to mention and uh, and you know continue highlighting because it is really impressive. There's not a yeah. lot of situations where an emergency like this happens and you know, the community sort of comes together to, to do something like this. I think part of that too is these small towns understand the dangers of mm-hmm. like maritime navigation, but they also like, they exist partly because of these ferries. Right. There's a lot of tourism dollars coming to somewhere like this and the cultural center with a lot of the indigenous representation, people looking mm-hmm. for fishing trips, that kind of thing. Like that's where they're going and they take these ferries to get there a lot of times. So mm-hmm. like, they understand like this is part of their community. Right. The Coast Guard ship Sir Wilfred Lauer, anchored 17 miles south of the scene, was tasked with being 
the on-scene coordinator for this, and they immediately dispatch one of their fast rescue craft to the scene. So they dispatch a smaller boat from their vessel to get to the scene quicker, but they also begin to head that way as well. At 1.13, the April Augusta, this is one of the vessels from Hartley Bay. They're the first to arrive on scene. They're instructed by the second officer of the Queen of the North to make a sweep around the vessel. It's noted that you can still see the interior of the vessel at this point. You can look inside the vessel and all the lights are still on. That's got to be kind of a surreal scene as you're sailing around this thing that you know is sinking. This is such an eerie thing to read. um, Yeah. About that. Uh, No signs of life are observed at that point. They're able to, they, they say that they do not see anyone on board from where their vantage point. Soon other vessels begin to arrive on scene. This includes the Coast Guard vessel W.E. Ricker. The Ricker would begin to transfer survivors to Hartley Bay. Arrangements were made to have survivors meet at the dock for a headcount and to take names. And the chief steward is actually tasked by the master to take charge of persons going ashore. So the chief steward is the guy that's going to be taking everyone's name, taking counts, and also making sure that, you know, people are getting the appropriate medical attention they need. By this time, some of the survivors are beginning to show minor signs of hypothermia. Makes sense, you know, for the environment and everything. Uh, at one fourteen, the Lone Star arrives on scene, and they're able to take 17 survivors to Hartley Bay. One fifty-four, Chief Officer of the Queen of the North informs the Wilfred Lauer that they were not confident that all persons had been accounted for. That has to be a pretty heavy radio conversation. Yeah. Throughout the remainder of the operation, the number of survivors reported fluctuated. Due to these inconsistencies, search and rescue operations were continued and expanded. So as you can see, like, bad information is still hurting you now. Like, you've got everyone off the vessel that was at the muster points, but you can't say that you got everybody. So now they have to expand a search area. They don't even know where to search for this. Mm -hmm. This is the sort of issue that we run into with some of our older incidents where we don't have a a consistent or trustworthy passenger manifest, or we don't know right. exactly the names of the crew on on board. So it is hard to get a, a specific head count of who survived and who didn't. But here it's kind of a situation where well, I guess we, we, we probably have higher expectations. Right. Well, and I mean, you have to have the, the idea that like, you can't, you have to err on the side of caution. You can't be like, well, I guess we got everybody. Like you have to keep searching. <laughs> right. So at 2.20, the Wilfred Lauer arrives on scene, and at request of BC Ferries, the remaining survivors are taken from Hartley Bay and put on the Lauer, and they're taken to Prince Rupert. So that was just a bigger Coast Guard vessel. Um, They have the ability to move these people, so they do that. Upon her departure, the Coast Guard vessel W.E. Ricker takes command of the scene. So there's still a Coast Guard presence, and they're, they're still searching for survivors. Canadian Forces uh, aircraft searched a five-mile radius for a debris field and for any signs of survivors in the water. And at 2.15 on March 22nd, the search was scaled down and ultimately concludes on the evening of March 23rd. When the search concludes, there's still two passengers who remain unaccounted for. And it's interesting to me how this is handled. The case is actually handed over to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, and they're listed as missing persons. I'm not sure if that's just like a weird legal thing because there's no bodies, but they're ultimately declared dead after the incident. But for quite a while, they were actually legally listed as missing. Aside from the passengers who were declared dead, there are no other serious injuries from this incident, which is pretty miraculous, actually. This is a, and I say this with the caveat of relatively, this was a relatively refreshing 
episode. <laughs> in terms of pure body count. Yes. Um, yes. This one was a lot lighter than the general slipper, which yeah. was not light. So let's talk about findings. And I will say the story is about to get so much more interesting. Okay. The Marine Investigation Report found that the primary cause of this incident was the failure of the fourth officer to order the required course change at Sandy Point Waypoint. Various distractions likely contributed to the fourth officer's failure to order this change. This includes the use of the laptop to play music on the bridge and personal conversations taking place amongst crew members. As we've kind of already talked about, like this violates the kind of sterile cockpit idea that is behind crew resource management. But also that same concept from air air travel carries over to bridge resource management. You can't be having a party on the bridge while you're trying to do your job. It should be a pretty serious place because serious things are going on. It strikes me as a very different situation, but there's reminiscent elements of, I guess it was when we talked about, uh, what was the ship that we talked about in the, uh, in the Straits of Mackinac? Oh, uh, what was that one called? Totally forget the name of the ship. We've done so many of these now. Point being how that one, we kind of talked a lot about routine and how right. it becomes routine and you get careless and then it, and then it becomes a problem. And uh, it was the Cedarville, by the way, the Cedarville apologies to the Cedarville, but uh, how it becomes routine, you get careless and then, and then things happen. I don't know if you could draw a line to this, but it, it, it seems like the kind of thing where you kind of take your eye off the ball a little bit, things start to get a little bit more routine and, there's definitely like a routine factor that goes into it. But as we continue to dig into this a little further, you'll see that there might be some other reasons people may have been distracted. Okay. I'm intrigued. <laughs> Additionally, the report also faults the fourth officer for not detecting the deviation from course in the 14 minutes that led up to the vessel grounding itself. So, I mean, you know, how many times have you caught a mistake at work where it's like, oh, I should have caught that sooner, but you catch it and it's not a big deal. That's basically what they're saying is for 14 minutes leading up to this collision, you never realized you were in the wrong place. Why? Like, clearly you weren't paying attention to what you were doing. They also note that when the fourth officer did become aware of the course deviation, his actions proved too little too late. So basically, the collision was happening or the, the grounding was happening when he realized the mistake. The composition of the bridge lacked an appropriately certified third person. This have, would have reduced the deference Quartermaster 1 had towards the, for the fourth officer, and it also makes it more likely to have someone that would catch the course deviation. You know, the more eyes looking at something, the more you can bounce an idea around, just the more likely you are to catch problems. Mm-hmm. The more appropriately certified eyes. Yes. <laughs> and they also state that the working environment on the bridge was less than formal, which sounds about right. If they're listening to music on a laptop, while well, they should be, you know... <laughs> not running into Gill Island. Also, if that's the language that's used in the report, you know that they're being professional nice. and, yeah. and kind of kind of nice in in like that kind of report language that they use. So you can kind of extrapolate from there what that could possibly mean. Right. I know I keep building it up, but like we'll get there. <laughs> Don't keep the people waiting. The rapid response of residents of Hartley Bay assisted in the. Uh, this is about. This is additional findings from the report. The response from Hartley Bay assisted in the early rescue of survivors, likely preventing serious injury or further loss of life. Basically saying, and it's like we always say, the sooner you can get on scene and rescue people, the more people survive. Due to their quick response, they probably saved some lives that day. Hmm. 
The change from sleeping at night to sleeping during the day likely caused Quartermaster One to feel fatigued and less likely to find error with the order she was given. So, not an explanation, but a factor in making. I mean, obviously, sleep, lack of sleep, it hurts your performance. And as someone who has had weird schedules and had to change those weird schedules back to normal schedules in the last year. I I can see how that would happen. (laughs) I've never been in a situation with quite this much responsibility, but yeah, I mean, regardless, I think of what you're doing, that that's going to happen. That fatigue. Yep. Also the lack of a voice data recorder resulted in a more complex and protracted investigation than otherwise would have been needed. Hmm. So that goes back to what you were saying, but asking if there was a voice recorder, there was not. So that means you're relying on testimony and people's memories to reconstruct these events. Yeah, I guess I just assumed that like that was the kind of thing, kind of like in an airplane where that is like a standard thing that a ship has now. Yeah, it's amazing what gets grandfathered in with ships, but like not with airplanes. Like they don't really let things get grandfathered in on airplanes. That was just very interesting to me that there's no there's no actual voice data for this. Right. There, uh, there is now, <laughs> by the way, that is a requirement. <laughs> I, heard, I heard that as there is voice data of the ship now, like they, <laughs> they reconstructed like the, it. They made it. I don't know. No, um, they're, they're required to do that. Now. Okay. Let's talk about repercussions for the crew members. This is one of these stories where, uh, you know, everyone's, well, not everyone, two people did not survive, but all the crew survives. There's plenty of testimony and plenty of people to blame for the accident. The fourth officer was fired from his position at BC Ferries. Additionally, he would be charged and convicted on two counts of criminal negligence causing a death. He would be sentenced to four years in prison, and the Canadian Supreme Court actually declines to take up this case, and that ensured that he would spend all four years of his term in prison. So, I mean, he's he's actually punished for this. Like, it's probably appropriately. I mean, I don't know that, you know... I don't know what 10 years or 20 years in prison teaches them that four years wouldn't in this scenario. I mean, it's, it is definitely negligence on his part for what happened. Yeah. It's a, it's a tough thing to quantify. Um, Right. Like what is, what is the appropriate number of years for this? Right. And it is, like you said, very uh, intriguing here because this is something we definitely don't see in our stories that we tell here of, you know, typically when, when someone has done something so egregious that they might be punished for it, that person or those people are typically lost with the ship. Right. Um, it's kind of strange to see someone actually getting punished in a legal sense uh, for something. Are we all ready for the big twist? The big thing? Hit us with here. the twist. I kind of know what it is now. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, let us know. Quartermaster One was fired for her position as well. It was later brought to light that Quartermaster One and the fourth officer had been engaged in a romantic relationship that had recently ended. This had been their first night on watch together since their breakup. It's stated that their relationship was likely the topic of the personal conversations they were having when the incident occurred. There's actually an additional rumor, and I want to specify this is 100% a rumor that was in the newspapers <laughs> and denied by literally the Coast Guard, BC Ferries, and everyone involved. There's rumors that the two were engaged in, quote, romantic activity when the vessel was grounded. But according to those investigating the rumor, including the Canadian Coast Guard, those are merely rumors and not substantiated in any way. So, yeah, that's the big twist. All this tension and talking between Quartermaster One and the fourth officer, they had recently dated. Yeah, it's very interesting. 
again, it's one of those things where, well, I see the word likely is here, uh, likely the topic of the personal conversations. And again, I feel like without the recorder, we don't know that for sure. Seems like there's a very good chance that that's uh, contributed to the distraction, I guess, though. Yeah, that's part of what ends up getting Quartermaster One fired is them not wanting to like tell a consistent story or all the details of her story. Mm-hmm. And we'll actually see here, we'll talk about the second officer. This is the one that brought the laptop to the bridge and is on his break. He's actually also fired, and his firing is directly a result of him failing to provide testimony about key moments in the accident timeline. So it's kind of one of those things where investigators kind of can piece this together that you know no one wants to tell us what what was going on. Like, what were we talking about? What were we doing? Mm-hmm. No one wants to give any details. Interesting. Uh, the captain of the vessel was not on the bridge during the incident. He's actually off duty and asleep in his cabin. Despite that, what do we know? That captains generally get blamed for what goes on on their ships, and probably rightfully so. I mean, the captain sets the tone, right? Like, mm-hmm. you wouldn't have that laptop on the bridge if you were worried about the captain finding out and, get, right. you know, punishing you. Like, clearly, you're not concerned. Mm-hmm. Although he was initially fired, almost two years later, the governmental agency called Work Safe BC ruled that he should be allowed to return to work, basically stating that he he didn't have anything directly to do with this incident. Right. So that's kind of the the fallout for all of this. That's kind of what happens to the the key members of the crew. And kind of just in closing for me, I just think this is such a great example of why bridge resource management is so important. Like this story makes it blatantly obvious that when you're distracted, not paying attention to what you're doing on the bridge of a ship, you can kill people even under decent, you know, sailing weather. Yeah. And expanding that out, I think to, it's something you could apply to, to almost any, not even necessarily just a work environment, but any environment where you're trying to get something done is that, that there's a certain tone that you need to set. And that's something that develops over time. Right. And if that's sort of allowed to go, lacks then yeah like bad bad things will probably happen at some point yep it's one of the things you can definitely you can get away with it until you don't basically yeah. when you when you operate that way and when you don't it's going to come crashing down like that mm-hmm. um yeah i mean it's not that different than the story of the alfaro honestly there's a lot yeah, this happens under a much shorter time scale and it's a lot less tragic but Again, you're in a situation where you have someone question something and they immediately are, you know, overruled and they don't question it anymore. Mm-hmm. So it's it's very interesting how you see a lot of the same mistakes that, you know, they happen in this stuff. Yeah. And you do have to wonder how the romantic relationship played in that. Like That would be an awkward situation to be in with someone who, you know, you had recently dated and now you have to work together. Like, how, yeah. how long, do you make that work? Long story short, kids... Don't, don't date, date a coworker. Don't date people you work with. Don't <laughs> date people you have classes with. You know, yeah. if you're in college, that's not something you want to do. It it doesn't end well. I was smart. I did work with uh, my my current wife, Katie, who you all know from the bonus episodes. Uh, we were coworkers, uh, but we didn't start dating until after we did not work together anymore. So smart. Yeah, don't uh, <laughs> don't date your coworkers, especially if you're operating a uh, a vessel. I think on that. Uh nugget of wisdom i think we're good to close this one out i think it was a really interesting case i'm glad we did it but uh, it was a lot of unique stuff in this one that we didn't quite ever have to talk about before yeah it is it it, it brings up a lot of unique issues thank you everybody for listening um check out the patreon content if you so choose we would really appreciate it 
And uh, yeah, we look forward to talking to you guys next week.